Acts chapter 3, verse 1. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, and that would be about 3 o'clock p.m. Remember, the Jewish day began at 6 a.m., and nine hours after 6 a.m. would be 3 p.m., the hour of the evening sacrifice, and it would be busy there at the temple. Verse 2, And a lame man from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. So this lame man was unable to move on his own. He had to have people carry him. And they would bring him there, sit him down at the gate, and that's how he would make whatever living he could make by asking people to give to him. Verse 3, Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. So he sees these guys and he's like, hey, can you spare anything? Verse 4, Then Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Rise and walk. So notice, Peter says, I have no silver and gold. The disciples didn't have a lot of money. Jesus told them there in Mark chapter 6, he charged them not to take anything on their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts. Why? Don't they need to buy something? Well, yeah, they need stuff, but God will take care of them. Money wasn't necessary to those who were called by Jesus to follow him because he would take care of them. They would find ways to sustain themselves, to eat, to find shelter. God's in control, and he would guide them. He would use other people. He would use other places, things that they weren't familiar with, and some things that they were familiar with to meet their needs. God is in control. They didn't need money. And God can take care of his people like he did with Elijah in 1 Kings 17, 4. He said, you shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So God could take care of the disciples. And there's a lesson there for us. God can take care of us if we just allow him and trust in him. He'll do the work. We don't have to stress out about that. Proverbs 23, 4 says, Be wise enough not to wear yourselves out trying to get rich. Your money can be gone in a flash, as if it had grown wings and flown away like an eagle. And that's so true. Money comes and goes. But with Jesus, money's not the issue. Because God takes care of those who honor him. In Philippians 4, 19, it says, And my God shall supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. And I found that to be totally true. The disciples were actually living in what we would call poverty, but they were rich in Christ. They were rich in faith and experience everything. Very cool. So all the while, Peter and the rest of his disciples are doing the work of the ministry, and Jesus is supplying them with what they need by the hands of others in the body of Christ. He's using other believers to help them out. And so they didn't need all this money. And being poor wasn't something shameful to them. They're like, who cares? This is about Jesus. This is about eternal life. I don't need a new house. I don't need a new set of clothes. I don't need this and that. If you read in the commentaries, and those are books by scholars that explain the scriptures, you'll find in several of them this account of a man named Thomas Aquinas. He lived in the 1200s. He's a brilliant scholar, philosopher, theologian. And he came to Rome to see the Pope, to pay his respects. The Pope took him around and was showing him all of the wealth that the Roman Catholic Church had amassed from all over the world. And the church at this time was filthy rich, emphasizing the word filthy. The church was very corrupt at this time. It was sickening. And in this account of this event, it says that the Pope said, You see, Brother Thomas, we cannot say as the first Pope, and he's referring to Peter, the Roman Catholic Church believes that Peter was the first Pope. So he says, Brother Thomas, we cannot say as the first Pope, silver and gold have I none. In other words, like Peter said here, I don't have silver and gold. The Pope's saying, look, we got all kinds of gold. And Thomas Aquinas looked the Pope in the eye and fearlessly replied, nope, and neither can you say in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise and walk. 
saying, yeah, you think you have all these riches, but look, this has nothing to do with the gospel, and it didn't. Verse 7, and he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. You know, Jesus healed many people during his three-year ministry, and there are several accounts in the Gospels, but interestingly, when he healed those who were lame, he had a different technique. He just told them to get up. He didn't grab them like Peter did. Peter probably was thinking, yeah, I got no time for procrastination. Here, get up. And the guy's probably yelling, hey, what are you, crazy? Hey, wait, wait, whoa, I can walk, yay! You know, but Jesus just told the paralytic in Matthew 9, 6, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he did. And in John 5, 8, Jesus said to another guy, get up, take up your bed and walk. And afterwards, he found him in the temple and he says, see, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. Change your life, bro, because now you're accountable. You know, it's amazing how many people that I've met over my life as a believer who experience that supernatural power of God, and ultimately, they go back to their old ways. That tells me that the supernatural healing is really no big deal to them. You know, Jesus is good. He did cool things in my life, and you know, but now I'm going to continue my life as a heathen. It's sad, but you see that. You know, if you can just show me a sign, I'll believe baloney. It's a lie. Proverbs 26, 11 says, like a dog that returns to his vomit is a fool who repeats his folly. And there's a lot of people like that. But Peter, no doubt, was filled with the Holy Spirit. And when we're filled with the Holy Spirit, he will speak to us. This is one of the several things in biblical Christianity that's unique, that God directly speaks to those who believe. And when he tells us to do something, we can do it, regardless of how crazy it may sound. Peter saw this guy and knew that God wanted to heal him. He didn't just go up to anybody and pull him up off the ground. There was a knowledge prior to the event that gave Peter the go. The word of knowledge is a spiritual gift. And once that knowledge is put into action, it becomes another spiritual gift, such as speaking forth the knowledge and discovering it lands on the heart of someone that confirms that word addressed a specific need in their life, and they confirm that God has spoken to them. So you get this word, and you say this, and someone's like, how did you know that? That's exactly what I was thinking. God just totally ministered. It's a word of knowledge. But then when you speak forth that word, it becomes prophecy. Same thing with healing. You get a word, God says, I want to heal this person. Go up and pray for them. And you go up and you say, God tells me he wants to heal you. You have the confidence as a believer to say, in the name of Jesus, be healed. If it's God speaking to you, and you will see that. I've seen that. God has healed people miraculously, just like this. A complete, supernatural, miraculous healing. still happens today, but sadly, many people are not confident in the scriptures or their own understanding of the spiritual gifts, so they pass by opportunities for God to use them and to glorify his name, like Peter was able to do in this story. The man was completely and miraculously healed, and it was evident so that God would be glorified in that moment. It's important to understand that God did the healing using Peter as the vessel in which to perform the healing. We also need to note that the man was in the temple at a time when everything is busy. People are gathered around for prayer. They're coming and going. They're going through the gates. And many saw the man, and they had seen him there day by day, because that's where they brought him every day. So the intended audience for God to be glorified was the crowd that daily gathered at the temple. There was a purpose for this healing. Beyond just healing this person, it was to be a witness. And God is pushing forward his agenda to reveal his power through the apostles as he targets a large audience with an act that cannot be explained, but by supernatural power. There's no way this can happen unless God's in it. And that's the purpose of the spiritual gifts, to glorify God. That's why we need to wait upon Him continually and be ready in season and out of season to jump on the opportunity to respond to His instruction so He can be glorified. It's all about Him. If we would keep our eyes on Jesus and not ourselves, we see a lot more cool things happening. Verse 8, And leaping up, He stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them 
Now he's walking around in the temple. Never been able to do that before. And all the people saw him walking and praising God. Verse 10, and recognized him as the one who sat by the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. So the people saw him and they recognized him. That's the lame man. And what's he doing? He's praising God. Notice he's not praising the apostles. Yeah, he had a heart to be healed, and he's praising God. He knew where the healing came from. In chapter 14 of Acts, Paul, he's in the city of Lystra. God uses him to heal a man who had faith to be healed. It didn't work out the same way for Paul, but it's kind of the same thing that Paul responds to the prompting of the Holy Spirit to pray for a guy, and the guy is ultimately healed. Verse 11, And while he clung to Peter and John, all the people utterly astounded ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. Now, if you get online and you type in Solomon's porch and look at the images, you can see an artist's rendition or a bunch of them of the temple called Herod's temple. King Herod kind of renovated the temple and made it really cool. You can see parts of this that have been identified, and you can also see where the beautiful gate is also supposed to be. And so it's an area where there's a bunch of columns where you can kind of hang out, and it borders the whole temple courtyard. So in a busy time, there would be hundreds and hundreds of people right around there. It's a place that's very open, so you can kind of get an idea that this is happening, and it's happening in a place that's open for everybody to see. Verse 12, and when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, and here he goes, he's going to give a sermon again. Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this, or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? So we can gather that the people were perplexed as they stared at Peter and John and the heel guy. They didn't know what was going on. Like, how in the world did this happen? And Peter, he takes advantage of this moment where many people were literally witnessing a miracle and could not explain it away. They had to be perplexed. There's no other explanation other than God did it. Not for centuries had God performed such miracles, and now before their very eyes, they see the hand of God completely heal a longtime crippled man. So he begins his sermon to the Jews, explaining to them the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus. And he doesn't go on to gloat about the miracle. That was just an attention getter, preparing them for this new work of God. So God set this whole thing up for this sermon. Verse 13, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate, that's the governor, when he had decided to release him. So when he uses this term, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. This is something that's seen over and over in the Scriptures, Old Testament and New Testament. And the Jews would understand from the Scriptures that God was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In Exodus chapter 3, verse 6, And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. In verse 15, God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. So Peter's calling the Jews back to that concept. You will remember God. He is the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Jacob's name was changed to Israel. So you'll see some verses that have that in it as well. 1 Kings 18, verse 36. And at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. So the Jews knew about the law. They were very familiar with the law. They also knew about the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Elijah. Elijah was kind of the head of the prophets. Moses represented the law. 
So you have Moses and Elijah. Moses represents the law. Elijah represents the prophets. And both the law and the prophets were familiar to the Jews and carried authority. Matthew 7 12, it says, So whatever you wish that others do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Luke 16, 16, the law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. Acts 13, 15, after reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them, saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So you see that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob calls them back to remembrance into the scriptures, as do the prophets. And so the prophets spoke about Jesus extensively. So Peter again charges the Jews for forsaking Messiah Christ because he was written of in the prophets and in the law. It says, you delivered him. This is God's servant, my servant. God says in Isaiah, he calls Jesus his servant all over the book. He brings to the forefront of their mind the fact that Jesus was the Messiah or the Christ. Verse 14, But you denied the Holy and Righteous One and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. We witnessed this. You killed Messiah. In Daniel chapter 9, verse 25, it says, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and build Jerusalem, as found in Nehemiah 2.5, unto Messiah. Messiah, or Christ, the prince, shall be seven weeks and threescore and two weeks. The streets shall be built again and the wall even in troublous times. And that's a mathematical formula. You go back and study it, you figure out that there was a time when Messiah was going to be expected. It was exactly the time of Jesus being declared Messiah. Hosanna in the highest as he came into the city. They declared him king of Israel. Daniel 26, and after threescore and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off. That means executed, but not for himself. In other words, he didn't do anything wrong. So it's foretold in Daniel that Messiah is going to be executed. And in Isaiah 53, a whole chapter, you go through and read that. Verse 4, it says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. There's a reference to being nailed to the cross. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. And if you continue reading that chapter, it's crazy how much it speaks about Jesus. But here Peter is saying, hey, this is Messiah. You did exactly what the law and the prophets said you were going to do. You killed him. You delivered him over to the authorities, and you crucified him. But we are witnesses that God raised him from the dead. Verse 16, And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, who you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. So again, the healing was 100% healing. It was perfect, perfectly strong. You know, in the scriptures, the name of the Lord It carries a lot of weight. It's more than just a name. We don't have a whole lot of significance to our names, but they did back then. And the name of the Lord, especially, that is something that's powerful, is something that we need to be very careful with. In the ancient culture, the name, it had more than just a name value. It actually would describe the essence of their being. The name of the Lord carries the Lord's majesty. And we have to be careful not to profane or blaspheme the name. In our culture, blaspheming the name of Jesus or God is, is common. And whenever you see or hear someone using the name in the context of profanity, know that God's listening and he's going to hold them accountable for every idle word spoken, it says. So we need to think about repenting and ask God to forgive us for misusing his name. Don't mess with the name Jesus, the name above all names. It's a bad day when you're held accountable for that. Psalm 20, verse 7, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Zephaniah, there's a name you don't hear of often, chapter 3, verse 12, but I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly, 
they shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord. So there's the name of the Lord is a refuge. Again, it's more than just a name. Matthew 21, 9, and the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Son of David is a messianic term. It's a term describing the Messiah. Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And then Colossians three seventeen. whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father through him. That name of Jesus carries a lot of weight. Verse 17, and now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your rulers. So they acknowledge, hey, you guys, you didn't know. The Bible says that the devil has blinded the eyes of those who don't believe. But the problem is, ignorance is not an excuse in God's eyes. In Romans 1.18, it says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in these things that have been made, so they are without excuse. That was something very scary for me as a believer when I found out that, yeah, you're without excuse. Because I always knew there was a God, even though I wasn't a church kid. I didn't grow up in a church family. I didn't know anything about God, but I knew he was real. And I knew that I was on the wrong side of the line. Verse 18, but what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. And again, going back to all those prophecies in Scripture about Messiah, suffering, being executed, being pierced for our transgression, a man of sorrow, all these things. He said, look, guys, it's in the Scriptures that you read, that you memorize. You guys know this stuff. This is him. This is the one. And now you see this guy healed. This is just confirmation. So he says in verse 19, repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. It's interesting, Jesus began his ministry in the region of Galilee, and it says in Matthew 4, 17, from that time Jesus began to preach saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Kingdom of heaven is here, and it's required that you repent to enter into it. Repentance is not just saying you're sorry, it's confessing our sin, because we now see that our sin is contrary to God's will, And when we begin to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow him, our sin needs to be booted out of our lives. It no longer has any place in our lives. It's contrary to God's will. And we want to be doing God's will, not doing what we formerly did in resisting God's will. There's this book in God's kingdom called the Book of Life, referred to in Revelation chapter 20 and several other places. But in it, they're written all the names of every human being since Adam, who is a child of God through faith. To get in the book, you got to be born into the family of God. And to be born into the family of God, you got to believe. You got to repent and be transformed. Our job is to believe and repent. God's job is to transform us into a new creation in Christ. Then we're in the family of God and by his grace, he has given us a free gift of salvation. Now repentance has made room for God's forgiveness. Verse 20, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus. Refreshment, it comes to our souls when we're forgiven, made right in the sight of God through faith. We don't have to stress out about anything anymore because we are new creatures in Christ, and his spirit has now been sent to us to indwell us and to empower us to become and continue to be children of God. It's awesome. Philippians 4, 6, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. At times of refreshing, that peace comes in. I experienced that. doesn't mean that your life is happy all the time. It just means that, you know what, God's got my back. He's awesome. Verse 21, 
whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouths of his holy prophets long ago. So Jesus has to be received into heaven until the time of restoring everything, and that's when God comes back and sets up his kingdom. This current age will end and God's kingdom will be established on earth. Then as Jesus said when he taught the disciples to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is the literal kingdom of Christ on earth established for his reign, much to the dismay of the wicked nowadays, thinking about a reign of Christ where everything is reign in righteousness that just makes people cringe. It's dumb because it's going to be awesome. And Psalm 2 talks about this, talks about the kings rejecting Christ trying to do their own thing, trying to run their own kingdoms. When God comes back, he's going to take care of business. In verse 1, Psalm 2, it says, Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, or his Christ, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. In other words, we don't want any control over us from the God of Israel, from this king. But he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Not your king, my king. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. These are the wicked he's talking about. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. Remember that verse about taking refuge in the name of Jesus? There it is, right there. We take refuge in him. We are his. And because of that, we have a refuge. So continuing his defense that Jesus is the foretold one, the anointed one of the Christ, Peter says in verse 22, Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. He's referring back to Deuteronomy 18, verse 15 and 18. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaimed these days. You are sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your father, saying to Abraham, In your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. So this whole thing with Moses, again, it's foretold that Messiah is going to come to the Jewish people first. Jesus came to the lost sheep of Israel to recover those who are his. He sent his disciples to Israel, Jerusalem first, then Samaria, that's where the non-Jews are, then Judea and all the rest of the earth to be witnesses. And he did not refuse to respond to Gentiles, but his first coming was to call those children of Israel to faith in their Messiah or Christ. There's an example of this in Matthew chapter 15. Jesus went away from there, withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon, and behold, a Canaanite woman, this is a non-Jewish woman, from that region came out and was crying, have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David, which is interesting because that term son of David is a messianic term. So this non-Jewish woman is declaring Jesus to be the Jewish Messiah. She said, My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon, but he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came to him and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she is crying out after us. Just say the word, Lord, get her out of here, you know. And he answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. 
And he answered, It's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She said, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. And he answered her, O woman, great is your faith, be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. So he came first to the lost sheep of Israel. That was Jesus' primary ministry, was to Israel. His disciples, as he taught them and as he empowered them, and here in the book of Acts, they would continue that witness in Israel. And they would move out of Israel to the other parts of the world. They would take the message of the gospel. And so that was Peter's sermon to these people, and it cut him right to the heart. But he just laid it out, didn't sugarcoat anything, because there's no sense in sugarcoating Jesus. We don't need to do that. He is God, and he is coming again, and he's going to set up his kingdom, just like Psalm 2 says. Thank you.